Welcome to the Compassionate Capitalist Radio Show with host Karen Rands. A compassionate capitalist is someone who invests their money into entrepreneur endeavors to bring innovation to the market and create wealth for all those involved. Karen shares insights and best practices for entrepreneurs to succeed and investors to share in that success without all the risks. And now. Welcome back to the Compassionate Capitalist podcast show. Of course, I'm Karen Rand. And as I do with the beginning of all of my shows, I sort of explain why you need to pay attention for the next 20 to 30 minutes or so. Uh, and why I felt that my guest and the topic is something that is of value to the audience of folks out there that are trying to uh, learn best practices to create wealth through entrepreneurism, successful entrepreneurs, and those that invest in them that, that ride that, that ride to the top when they're striving to become a successful entrepreneur. Because when you look at the history of time, the greatest success comes from uh, those successful entrepreneurs out there, they make it the greatest wealth comes from entrepreneurism. And the next greatest wealth comes from those people that are fortunate enough to invest in those successful entrepreneurs. And long time before I ever understood what angel investing was, when I finally dis- discovered it, I was, uh, it made sense to me that there were people that invest in these companies as they're getting going. And then sometimes we look at it and we say, well, Sometimes there's a different mindset. There's different articles out there. There's a different mindset. There's a different set of skills. When you go from being a maverick that can create a startup that can attract capital, get the product into the marketplace, get the initial customer adoption, and then the skill set and the attitudes, the mindset that goes into scaling that company to go from being able to do 10 widgets a week to 100 widgets a week to 1,000 widgets a week or going from a million-dollar company to a $10 million company to a $20 million company, and so on. So there's, 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 but there's a few things that when you look at companies that are in that large, whether they're Fortune 500 or Fortune 5000, or just, you know, company that it seems like they're a big participant in the marketplace, there are some fundamental uh, attributes that they have that enables them to scale and then enables them to sustain. Now, there's, there's lots of examples of companies that go through growing pains, if you will, or lose sight of it. And that's why I have my guest today, because um, I'm working on my next book called Scale, which really is about going from that startup to that next stage, getting the, the process in place and the, and the money to do it. And so as I'm, as I'm building my audience for that, and understanding it, I'm also reaching out to people that in my network that have very specific insights into best practices when it comes to scaling or how to fix companies when they kind of go off track a little bit. And so um, Mark Travis, my guest, I'm going to introduce you in just a second, or I'm introducing now, is uh, he and I have overlapped in our careers from days at from Emory background to our IBM background, where we both have so we both have come from common cultures, if you will, of of things that we've experienced in the past. And uh, when we ran into each other at a chief uh, technology opera officer networking event recently. Um, we got to talking, like catching up. What are you doing? And he told me what he was doing, and we, it was perfect. It was right on target to a type of show that I wanted to do. 
and uh, we're going to get into that. But let me let me just bring Mark on. Let me say say hello to him because he has he's been on both sides of that. He has co-founded five startups, and he is has worked that into being a sought after global strategy consultant with other, over twenty five years of experience helping leaders of Fortune 500, Inc. 5,000 companies around the globe to understand their, their value proposition when they lose sight of it, to build the products and services that will thrill their clients and really help the clients align their organizations and technologies to their market, resulting in a very high, resulting in high internal and external forces to change. And that's kind of a big concept, but it's like there's, there's a certain amount of way you deal with change internally that we're going to get into along with your corporate culture um, that helps you navigate the external forces that put pressure on an organization and impact its ability to sustain in the marketplace and, and continue to grow your profitability. So um, with that, I want to say welcome, Mark. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Karen. This is going to be fun. Appreciate having me as a guest. Absolutely, absolutely. So, so let's talk. Let's just kind of connect some dots here first. So, as you um, as you started these co you co-founded these different companies. What was that? Because I know you, I'm not sure if that was before or after your time with IBM. But what was that, or, or all through that, that led you into this this role of being this, I guess, seer, if you will, the corporate whisperer to these companies to help them you know, get on track or stay on track when it came to long-term sustainable growth? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, you know, like you said, we, we overlapped a little bit in IBM. You left a couple of years before I did, but I was there for about a decade and a half uh, through the, uh, the 90s and the early knots. And um, I got my uh, MBA at Emory, uh, executive MBA at Emory, uh, towards the, uh, the end of it. Well, not really the end of it. I guess it was, you know, 99, 2000. And uh, I went from uh, a part of IBM that had been more consulting uh, and services to a different group in IBM called the IBM Software Group and uh, was in marketing. So I was, you know, running global marketing programs, uh, creating, uh, you know, programs for, you know, IBM's partner world, uh, managing a lot of people. It was, it was a lot of fun. And uh, I ran across a lot of entrepreneurs there. And, uh, you know, my family, I guess, is, uh, you know, they've, they've been entrepreneurial for like three generations back. Uh, nothing substantial, but I mean, you know, my grandfather ran, uh, I think it was like either five or ten uh, five and dime stores uh, in, in southern Mississippi uh, before Walmart came along. I think actually he retired and sold the stores before Walmart came along, but that was, that was a pressure. <laughs> that was putting all the small, you know, retailers out of business around the country, but he, he got out in time. But, um, you know, I left IBM. They uh, offered a buyout package after they bought Rational, and I was like, you know what? I've been working with all these entrepreneurs. Uh, this doesn't look that hard. I've got an MBA. <laughs> it's hard. Um, you know, the five companies I started, I've got, I had a couple of friends of mine that were rocket scientists, and, uh, you know, there's one project that, we're, that they were working on with the Air Force, and they brought me on uh, to sort of help plan it. And um, they were smart enough to figure it out. I was smart enough to put the whole deal together to not only get us, uh, you know, that first project completed, uh, we got a follow-on production contract. So I got lucky in that my very first startup, you know, out of, out of IBM, I guess, uh, you know, was, was very profitable. 
Um, and so we decided to start another business uh, doing uh, automation, industrial automation. And, uh, you know, I learned that you, that the government can't own IP unless it, uh, it, it is, um, uh, uh, what do I want to say, um, intelligence related. Like, you know, in other words, uh, if they're, they're going to do state secrets on you, you can't have the IP. But otherwise, they can't own the IP. So we took some IP left over from the NASA uh, contracts they had. We ended up doing a lot of home automation and some other interesting projects. But, you know, I learned from that that uh, unless you really understand an industry, you probably shouldn't get in it because I, I should have licensed that company to somewhere else. But anyway, um, so, I mean, I've learned quite a bit, but the, the, the key thing I want to get across there is that I was always uh, paid by customers to do something. I never took funding uh, because I found the value that a customer was willing to pay for before I ever even incorporated or got involved with somebody. So it was a project that we could take on where we could uh, negotiate keeping the IP to resell to other companies and maybe that company that's initially funding us gets some special deal or they have their own IP on top of it. Uh, but I also kind of look at the big picture and, uh, you know, coming from IBM, the very large, you know, corporate, uh, seeing how vendors work with IBM, uh, you know, I'm more the big picture guy. And after five startups and never having gotten that nice, like, home run, <laughs> I decided I'm better off helping other organizations uh, understand these forces and help them get really fine-tuned to delivering value to the market. Great. So, so you know, one of the things that we were talking about when we, when we ran into each other again in our subsequent calls was, you know, a lot of times people, when it comes to getting ready to scale a business or go grow to that next level, you know, it's, it's fairly straightforward to identify processes on how to grow your production, to meet increased customers' demand, the money that you might need to buy additional equipment, what do you need to do, how do you expand, what's your pressure points or your trigger points and things like that. And so a lot of times, you know, I think executive teams, as they go through the various cycles of the life cycle of the business, they're focusing, focusing on processes and and the one of the things that you told me that really hit home to me is how one of the ways they lose their corporate culture, and I got to thinking about this, was in their hiring practice, okay, where they're where they're hiring, how they're hiring. So like when you're a young startup, and this is something for the investors, entrepreneurs out there to think about, but also for the investors that are listening, because this is how your investment goes sideways, or you think it goes sideways. And you wonder why this great company couldn't continue their growth besides the fact that they struggled to get the follow-on capital, but even just within their, their ability to grow their company. We've already talked about the difference in a skill set of a CEO of a startup and a CEO of somebody that is growing, the difference between, like, you know, with Apple, you know, bringing in um, um, from Steve Jobs to the guy from Pepsi. I forget, I just went blank on his name. But he was able to see yeah. them through those growth stages, right? Because he had a different type of a, of a mindset. But when it comes down to the people that are doing all the work within an organization, when you're a startup, what are you doing? You're, you don't have a lot of money to pay people. And so you're looking for people that are trying to make their mark. They're trying to get a piece of the action. They want to share the growth. They have a passion for the direction of the growth of the company. They're looking for always wanting to contribute. There's very much this sort of team mentality that everybody gets to, you know, contribute and help sustain and grow the company. 
you know, and, and, and so on. And then as you start to form org charts, right, then it seems like, and this is the thing that an observation we made to me, I want to see your son, I'm going to let you talk about it in a minute, but in the way people hire, they look at what has that person done, not what is the vision or the, the passion they can bring to the company and where it's going. So talk a little bit about that yeah. as being one of those things that you don't even know you're doing it, but by, by CEOs and HR managers hiring this way, or even mid-level managers hiring this way, they're, they're setting the company up to not be innovative internally as much and therefore not as responsive to the outside influences of the marketplace. Yeah, that's a great place to, to get into that. Um, so to, to immediately address that uh, question, and I'll, I'll expand out into why it's important. Um, you know, a lot of people look at uh, a new position um, uh, that they think they need someone who's done it before so they can feel more confident and, and feel that there's less risk in hiring this person because they've done this before. Um, that's a fixed mindset. And you have no idea how that person actually pulled things together to get that done, uh, you know, except for what they have on their resume and what you might pull from a couple of resources uh, as referrals. And even the referrals, you know, they're not going to say anything bad about the person. They might not be gushingly glowing. And this person may have done a great job, but you can't have a fixed mindset when you hire. You have to have what I call, you know, what everybody calls a growth mindset. So you have to hire for attitude. Um, you may find that, you know, if you compare two people, one person who's done something three times to someone who's never done it before, but they have the skills, their brain works that way, uh, they have something to prove, they may end up doing a much better job than someone who's done it three times before, mainly because the person who's done it three times before, they may decide to rest on their laurels this time. It's like, oh, I've, I've done this four times before, you know, I know what to do, and I'll just get everybody to do this. But there's all these dynamics that happen because every single company is like an individual. You know, yeah, you have, uh, you know, females and you have males and, you know, that society. Uh, and different pieces, people have different cultures. Every company has its own little culture. So everyone's going to react different. So you should always hire for attitude uh, and, and what you think they can do in the future versus, you know, what they've done in the past. And, the key to that, and there's a great book on this, uh, you know, um, um, I've got to think of it. <laughs> I'm in the middle of my brain, and I can't get back out to get to the name of that book. But it's, uh, you know, I think it's uh, Growth Mindset. I think that's the name of the book. Um, and a follow-on to that is, is, you know, also when you start growing a business, uh, you know, the CEO and, and the uh, you know, executives who co-founded it, you know, they're micromanaging everything. Um, and you get to a point to where you, you can't micromanage everything because the organization's growing. Uh, so you kind of have to start developing and turning over to the new people a common sense of purpose. Um, you have to learn to be honest with each other and know that everybody in the organization has to have uh, a say in bettering the organization. It can't all come top down. So, Right. And we had uh... – and, and it's not, and it's something when, I think it's one of those, when you have an organization that the top creates the vision and the goal of where we want to go, like, the, you know, that whole idea of, you know, the goals are in concrete, the plan is in sand, 
And so if you have a clear mission that you've communicated out and, you know, you bring in and you give authority to people in the organization to build teams that are going to achieve the goals that have been set, then they can go about doing that and they have an open communication on, you know, best practices for improving it. And this goes to, you know, at every level of the organization. So, yeah, there's marketing people out there that should be identifying or salespeople out there what's happening with the competition. But there's also um, your secretaries in your organization and the people that are just your worker bees that notice that there's a, a, a redundancy in something that they do that makes it inefficient or there's always an error in this one other place. And if they don't feel like they can take it to their management to say, these are things that we need to fix, or here's a recommendation for a different way of doing it, and then giving them the attaboys or girls doing that, then you get people that just clock in and clock out and, you know, don't really care about the growth of the company. And I think that's where this idea of growth hacking comes from. And the mm-hmm. and this idea of entrepreneurial mindset. So it's creating a corporate culture along those lines that that will it, that encourages that sort of innovative thinking and always trying to you know commit commit to the organization and where it will where it will go. So so we talk about how being able to I you know if you build that corporate culture you put that on track. How does that better equip a company to handle disruption from competition and recognizing new opportunities that they want to pursue? Yeah, uh, I can address that on multiple levels. Let me, um, let me pick up with one. Um, so when, when you have a management team, they have to get behind the same set of goals. Uh, you know, each employee has to feel like they're talking to one management team. Um, and, uh, you know, The Advantage, Patrick Lencioni, that's a great book to sort of, you know, dive into to understand some of those forces. Uh, and IBM, I love the fact that when we were on product calls for concepts that people would bring forward, and you have to have a process to bring new ideas forward uh, to be vetted and understand where the investment's going to go the next year. But if, if anybody on the team, all the way down to the lowest engineer, lowest ranked engineer, may be a very valuable person, but, you know, you'd be on the call with an executive vice president, and the engineer would be like, well, I don't think this is going to work. And then, you know, everyone would kind of get quiet and go, okay, well, why? And then they would present a well-thought-out uh, argument, and it was like, man, thank you for, you know, bringing that forward. A lot of companies – you know, that person would get reprimanded after the call. You should have never stepped on the executive's table right. like that. But, yeah. you know, it's celebrated. You have to celebrate that attitude. And then another thing that you and I talked about was just something simple like a suggestion box. Um, yeah. I worked with another lady early in my career at IBM, uh, and they had a suggestion box. And she noticed something with the way that we were doing things with printers and storing paper or something and so she wrote in a suggestion, and she'd submit like 15 suggestions a year. And, uh, you know, they, they gave her, I think, like uh, one-tenth of whatever they saved for that year, uh, you know, as a bonus. And, uh, you know, and of course, IBM gets to realize the, you know, the net present value of that, you know, for, for several years. But she'd get anywhere from five to 20000 a year, uh, you know, just, just making suggestions on how to make IBM a better place. Uh, so, you know, between those type of thoughts uh, and building a culture, uh, you, you can really make an organization go far. 
Yes. So when when people come to you, um, and so like, okay, let's just scenario, right? You don't have to name names on your clients, but you know. So what oh, is wait, a? Wait, wait, let me think. Go ahead. Karen, let me let me think of something else that I just thought of in those concept meetings where you have people bringing ideas forward. Another idea is that the management team has to set up these goals. Um, uh, and, and strategy and be able to tell stories around that strategy so that people understand where the company wants to go, what their values are. Uh, and then you leave it up to all the frontline employees or anybody in the company to, you know, mesh into that story, that momentum, and then they'll bring ideas back to you. So, you know, along with the earlier thing that I was explaining about, you know, uh, respecting people's ideas, having suggestions, uh, you need to let your, you know, uh, your nerve endings, if you want to call it that, for this organization to be out on the front line to feel what's going on. Because a lot of times uh, you, the executive suite is sort of in like a fishbowl. They don't, they don't see things that the front line people see. So if they don't have that feedback loop, which is governed by your strategy, a simple strategy, the stories you tell, the culture you put in place, uh, you know, if you don't have those, uh, you don't have a well-oiled engine. Yeah. Well, so let's let's look at that because, you know, you and I both came, you know, had we, we actually I left in 2000. So we overlapped just a little bit in there. It's interesting you're in the software space. because That's kind of where I started out. But um, so the uh, and, and during that time, we can all we all knew when IBM went through the massive layoffs. And part of it was because sure. we had lost our corporate culture. Our real estate was worth more than our stock right? Our company, yeah. and there was a lot of concerns at that time. And it was that we had missed the boat. A big part of it was in the PC space, but this whole, the uncoupling, there was all kinds of things that we had kind of missed the boat on because that, that the glass ceiling or the, you know, the upper echelons had gotten so far removed from what was happening out the field and the things that we were thinking about bringing forward when we would complain you know, over the water cooler about this, that, or the other, or the example. So like, for example, I, when I was at, I, when I was at MBA school, IBM was put out there as the epitome, the, the example, the gold standard for customer service, high quality that, you know, kept the, the organization always on top, right? That we, we learned that as in MBA school. And then I started working for IBM and um, and, and for the most part, lab was there. We had good, strong customer service with our account teams before we got rid of account teams. Um, but, you know, one case in point, I was part of the national distribution division, and we were trying to compete against Apple. So we had come out with a desktop publishing printer that was expensive. It was like a, back then, right? It was, uh, it was $1,000 or something, $1,500 for this printer, maybe more. And um, we had... Uh, and, and it was missing some key features. And so we were out there selling it because this is what was supposed to sell, whereas product management knew they were bringing out this other thing. So within six months of this one product being launched, we launched the second product that had all the features that would go head-to-head with, this, with the Apple desktop publishing system. But we offered no upgrade path, no trade-in, no nothing for those people that had just bought one. And now we got the print that we convinced them because they only bought IBM, right, to buy this other one. And it was like, and I complained, right? I was like, how can y'all do this? And I tried to take it up the line. You know, you need to provide some kind of, of 
And sure enough, it did come back and bite IBM in the butt on that. And, you know, but that was an example where we had lost, and it wasn't, it was probably five or six years down the road from that, that you started to see the unmaking of the baby blues, the unmaking of IBM, right? And, and, that, was and after just, they, that was after they stopped leasing. They started selling, and that you got caught up on the selling side, not the leasing side, right? right? Because of, yeah, yeah because of the uh, Judge Green order. So when you're working with companies or you get called in or something like that, I know you say you kind of just really start with conversations. So what are those? sort of like the little red flags that they're in the middle of, they're in the, in the, that CEO, that CFO, CTO, they're in the middle of the forest and they can't see the trees for the forest and they just don't know why they're not continuing with their double digit growth or why they're starting to lose certain customers. What is a, what is a, a potential um, like a, a warning sign, if you will, you know, beep, 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 this is coming, or what is yeah. it, like a key question, you say, well, how about this, and then it's like a little light bulb where they, where you see that you, that they need your help, what, what are some of those kind of indicators, because sometimes I think companies realize Montgomery Ward, Sears, for example, they're, 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 they're so far out of, and Kmart, they're, they're so far off track, they can't get back, Toys R Us, right, they saw it coming, right. but they couldn't shift their corporate culture in order to respond to the way the marketplace is now, the disruption in the marketplace. So talk about sort of your, what are some of the hot spots as you know this company can really use this kind of guidance to get themselves back on track? Yeah. Um, so to go back to your, you know, first example, you know, of IBM, um, you know, IBM kind of fell apart. God, I wish I'd bought this stock. I think it hit $2.30 at some point. And now it's been flat for the past 10 years, like, what, 180 or something? But uh, at that time that you were, you know, with the printing group, uh, you know, IBM had gone from leasing to selling. And I heard from some of the, uh, you know, managers at the time that that was one of the, the worst things IBM ever did uh, because, uh, you know, that was a, like a cash cow. I mean, you just keep leasing. And one of the benefits of leasing is when, you know, a new product comes out, uh, you know, the customer would get the new product uh, as part of their lease agreement. Um, Another aspect of that is uh, I had another friend of mine that was working uh, on the HR side of IBM uh, for for about 10 years or so. He's doing his own thing here in Atlanta now. But uh, he calculated once that were 36 levels of uh of of uh, an individual you know between management and engineering 36 you know levels that's just too many you know I mean, it's like yeah. I, I remember yeah. when i was there i think i had 11 uh you know 11 managers between me and lou gerstner at one point um <laughs> so that that's too many and you know so if, if your frontline employees don't really know the story of the game you're in anymore that that's one sign Another sign, and I'm just picking on IBM because that was a different, you know, era. You know, they went from leasing to selling. They had too much of a management structure. So the first thing I would start asking is, you know, how, what are your revenues like? Uh, maybe what, what is your net promoter score? Um, you know, it would be specific to whatever that executive I'm talking to. I'd do some research and find out because I really truly want to know what's relevant to him. Uh, you know, what, what kind of problems do they see? And, uh, you know, oh, we're getting all these, this feedback from the field. You know, the product management organization is releasing stuff. And, uh, you know, we're kind of caught in between having to replace 
uh, items and we don't really want to replace them because that would be, you know, lost revenue and the model doesn't support that anymore. Well, why? Uh, you know, you may get into, uh, you know, how are you structured? Um, you know, leasing, it, it, it's also you're going from a point where IBM was in a very predictable, repeatable process type of era with leasing, you know, from the 70s to the 80s. When you started getting into the 90s, uh, you know, people like Apple, they started accelerating the innovation and they were nimble. They didn't have 36 levels of management. As a matter of fact, I think they were pretty flat. So if anybody in the front line, you know, said, hey, we should do this because it'll make customers happier and they're all about the sale, you know, they're going to start chewing away at IBM. And IBM with their 36 levels of management, you know, geared more uh-huh. towards servicing a repeatable model like leasing, you know, they, they, they're not going to be able to keep up until they become flat. Um, that's what I liked about the IBM software group when I was there the last few years. Uh, it, it, was, it was more of a flat organization that responded really quickly. Uh, Kmart and those guys, they didn't see Amazon coming. Uh, they just kind of figured, well, we'll just figure out how to make our displays better. Uh, and I think retail will not come back like it was before, but, you know, they'll, people still need a place to go look at a camera, right? I mean, right now the only place I can go look at, like, different cameras and compare and contrast is I got to go to New York City and go to, like, B&H Photo or something, right? What, why can't you open up, like, something in, you know, Atlanta that highlights all these different products and you pay an entry fee to get in? And you still order it from Amazon, but, you know, the local retailer gets, uh, you know, an entry fee or something. I don't know. I think there's something with that model. But those are the kind of questions I would ask and sort of brainstorm, you know, how can we make this better? Yeah, but specific to the company's business and what makes sense for them in a way to engage with their customers. Because as we've seen, you know, Apple, most people buy their phones online, but they do go into an Apple store to look at them, right? But, mm-hmm. you know, there's a – there's the value proposition of are people willing to pay to look at stuff, right? Versus like you go to Best Buy and look at stuff and not pay, you know, kind of a thing. But even if they go and buy online, I think that's that whole quandary that retail is, is struggling with when it comes to, um, you know, cause you, because the, the, the challenge you have with in that particular example is that technology in particular is constantly changing. And yep. so it's, um, it would be really hard to maintain the latest and the greatest and not, unless those, those vendors are giving you the product free to display, right? Because otherwise, well, you're not making any money. How much money do you have to make if you've got a million dollars in inventory? How much do you have to send through your doors every month in order to cover that just to look at it and not sell it? Oh, yeah. And not only that, they're, they're a middle person. So, you know, Apple's the manufacturer, and they build up their own supply chain. The whole global supply chain thing is going to be interesting to watch in the next few months. But, uh, you know, Apple's got their supply chain. They've got their store, and they don't have any middle people who, you know, I mean, they do, I guess, actually. That's not true. But, you know, they're more predominantly, uh, you know, controlling their own marketing with their own store. And if people buy in the store, they, get, they realize that revenue. The problem with Macy's and, uh, you know, a lot of these other uh, uh, Sears, you know, these, these companies, they're, they're not the manufacturer. They're just sort of the uh, provider, the, the consolidator, you know, someone who uh, curates products. And we have the web. Well, you could, well, like in Sears, the reason why they struggled and still struggle, I guess, is trying to get things right, is that they didn't actually have their own online presence. 
it was a marketplace of all these people. So, for example, when we bought a mattress from them to be delivered, it was delivered by Home Depot. Okay, it wasn't delivered by Sears. It was delivered by Home Depot through Home Depot's distribution network, and it was two parts, a box spring and this other part, right? Well, they only delivered one part of it, and we never could figure out where the other part got left. And by the time we got back to them to say, hey, you only delivered one part, it was separated. So they, in effect, never they completely lost the product because they couldn't find the two parts of it because the way it had been packaged, part of the shipping label had been ripped off, and that's the reason why it got lost in it. And they couldn't trace it, and their system to trace it was it was went to UPS. Well, UPS delivered it through Home Depot, so you had three vendor, and and Sears took the order, and somebody else actually had sold it on the Sears thing. It wasn't even a Sears mattress, and so you had four different entities that had to navigate this this e-commerce process, and so uh, they and really see, didn't Sears have an e-commerce. Well, they yeah, Sears were is responsible, responsible and they had to eat the cost of that, ma- that mattress. Right. Yeah. And, so everybody you know, here should know that they're responsible for maintaining the brand experience. And you, you, you just pointed out a whole process where it fell apart. Their culture had fallen apart because they didn't understand what business they were in. They thought they're in the retailing business. They're really in the customer experience of uh, satisfying someone's, you know, purchase in a holistic manner. Mm-hmm. And they totally missed that. And it was something as simple as their order system had a second screen that would say two parts. So the guy from UPS that picked it up from Home Depot didn't know that there were two parts because it was on the second screen. And so they just like left with one part or something and it didn't have it. Part of the label had been written off. So he didn't go looking for the second part. He didn't know to pick up that other piece because it wasn't automatically labeled to be picked up. You know what I mean? And so, you know, it was yeah. just this. And and me as a customer, it was a nightmare trying to get them to understand their errors and all the different people that I had to talk to. And so, you know, but those are the, that was just one piece of probably a much larger thing. And by the time they brought in an e-com, because I watched it, they brought in some guru that was going to solve their e-commerce problem. You know, we were six, seven years into the whole, you know, everybody's going to be shopping online mode and stuff like that. And they were... They had not anticipated that disruption in the marketplace, probably in part because they never even queried their own employees to say, how much do you buy online versus go to the store, right? I mean, we had a similar situation with them when we were picking something up at Kmart, and they couldn't find the thing. You know what I mean? They were just – they were broken when it came to them. They just thought, like a lot of companies, oh, if I put up a website that's got stuff people can buy, I have checked that box that I have e-commerce. Right. And that's yep. such an integral element of how you need to be able to shop or respond to your customers and stuff. And they just, you know, they, they miss it. And I think they're, it's, it's, you know, like too late. Right. And they don't, part of it is understanding your numbers, but to the original point that we were making, if you don't have a open, if you have too many layers of management and you don't have open communication with the underlings to the upperlings, then you miss critical you know, on the street knowledge that may not be discovered in numbers. You don't know why your numbers are shifting. Hopefully you've got a dashboard with all these great tools out there that show you your numbers are shifting, but you've got to be able to have that kind of communication. And, and we just, we only have a couple more minutes left here. So I want to encourage people 
to get more information about Mark, he has a awesome website with information on it. It's Travis, his last name, T-R-A-V-I-S-Company.com. And his web, his web, I mean, his podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, and it's called The Force of Business Transformation. So you can go look that up probably by his name and that, and I encourage you to listen to it. Uh, I was interviewed on it recently, so you can hear about how companies can, won't steal that thunder, you got to go listen to it, but we talked about how companies can get an insight into innovation in the marketplace when they don't necessarily have it within their own R&D department and how they can get see what's happening with all the innovation out in the marketplace and the way they can um, put their capital mar- capital resources to work on doing that. Anything you want to add, Mark, as we wrap up the show here? Uh, just one little quick follow-up I'm just dying to say. So Sears, uh, you know, they, they, I, I would have put together a proposal that said, let's look at what your customers still like about Sears, then let's decide what kind of business you're in, and then go find out how technology is supporting that process because they were broken on all four of those levels. Uh, and using some of the stuff we learned at Emory, you know, uh, activity-based costing, most people don't realize that 4% of your bottom customers cost you uh, 50% of your overhead. So the first thing you should do is figure out how to fix that problem. So, but that's it. I, I really enjoyed talking to you. Uh, you're, you're, I could talk to you for hours. <laughs> yeah. So very good. Well, I appreciate you being on the show today and sharing your insights, and it's probably something that we'll revisit in the future as well. I want to encourage folks to go to KarenRands.co and uh, learn about what we do to help entrepreneurs scale and get access to the capital to do that. Uh, Also, you can pick up uh, excerpts of my book or actually get the book Inside Secrets to Angel Investing, which is all about investing in entrepreneurism and creating wealth that way and bring in and bring in innovation to the market, creating jobs. And, uh, and if you're listening to this on Apple, please go press the five stars so that uh, everybody will know you like the show and share it with somebody. So thank you very much for tuning into the compassionate capitalist podcast and see you next week. Same bat channel, same bat time, two o'clock for the live show and onwards and upwards. Have a great day.